I encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 12 this morning. We're, uh, we're tackling um, a pretty big topic this morning, marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And so in light of that, I want to say some preliminary thoughts before we actually get into the passage. Now, there are three dominant views amongst evangelicals when it comes to divorce and remarriage. There's the minority position, which, for example, someone like John Piper would hold to. I love John Piper. There's probably no pastor who's influenced me more than John Piper, but I actually think he's wrong on this topic. The minority view basically says that you should never, as a Christian, initiate divorce and never remarry unless your spouse dies. Now, the other minority view would be you can sometimes legitimately pursue divorce for things like sexual immorality and desertion, but you can never remarry so long as the person you divorced is still alive. I also disagree with that position. The third view, which is what I hold to, which is the majority view. Now, just because it's the majority view does not mean that it's right. But I do think it is right. And this view is that there are times where you can initiate divorce and also remarry when the divorce is legitimate. That is It was based upon legitimate biblical grounds like sexual immorality, desertion, and the breaking of the marriage covenant like things things like physical abuse. Now I tell you this from the get-go because I want you to understand that there are good, godly, Bible-believing, gospel-preaching Christians who respectfully disagree on some of the nuances when it comes to divorce and remarriage. We all agree and we all believe that God desires that marriage be lifelong. Where we disagree is whether or not there's ever a time where God will permit divorce because of the covenant being broken. So I'm just laying it out there this morning that I'm going to be arguing for the majority view. That is, there are legitimate reasons for someone to divorce and legitimately legitimately get remarried. Now, one of my concerns about doing this is the fact that our hearts are so sinful, some of us might be in relationships in which we are looking for anything we can to get out of the marriage. That should never be the attitude of the Christian. As a follower of Christ, our desire should always be to see marriages strengthened, our marriages restored. Also, I'm not going to be able to answer every question that you may have regarding this topic. In fact, I might only cause you to have more questions after this morning's sermon, which is okay, because usually when you learn something, it only creates more questions. I'm also not going to be able to address every situation, right? The the fact is, marriage... Uh, marriage, conflict, all these things are very complex and every person's situation is different and therefore as Christians, especially pastors, 
they need wisdom how to navigate that. So I can't address every single, single situation this morning. But what I want to do is articulate what I think the Bible teaches and what that means for each of us, whether we're single, married, divorced, or going through divorce. Now, if you're single this morning, you might be thinking, well, this sermon does not apply to me. Well, it does apply to you for two reasons. One, you don't know if you're going to be single for the rest of your life. And then secondly, even if you're single, there are biblical principles here that apply to every Christian, regardless of whether they're married or not. So I hope that this morning you will have grace for me as I seek to bring some clarification. So let's pray and then I'm going to read the text. Father, we ask for your grace now as we tackle a very sensitive subject. I pray, Lord, that you would help me to speak with clarity, to give understanding from your word to your people. And I pray that by your spirit, Lord, that you would use this morning's sermon to strengthen our marriages, to be all the more faithful to one another. And we pray, Lord, that Christ would be honored through it all. In Jesus' name, amen. So Mark 10, I'm going to start reading in verse 1. And he left there, that is Jesus, left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And he answered them, Well, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So we see at the very beginning of this passage, there is a theological or ethical controversy. Jesus has just left the region he was in where he was teaching his disciples. And now he's gone to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And we see him here interacting with the crowds again, as was his custom, as he began to teach them. And we're told in verse 2 that the Pharisees came, those good old Pharisees, and they came in order to test him. And as we know, as we've seen several times in Mark, they're not coming to Jesus with a humble attitude to learn from him. They're coming to test him, to see where he stands on certain controversial things and beliefs. And so they come with a question, and on the surface, it seems innocent, but when we discover the context of the question, the context revolving the question, we'll see something else at work. So what is it that they ask him? Well, they say to him in verse 2, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And the answer to that question is actually quite simple. The answer is yes. That might surprise you. But every single Jewish person understood that according to the law, there were legitimate reasons for divorce. So this question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife, has more to it. 
because of the theological controversy amongst the Jews regarding divorce and remarriage. There's something implied in this question, even though Mark doesn't record that for us, because to his original audience, he didn't have to. They would have understood the context of the question. You see, Matthew's account of this story sheds further light on the question they ask and the specific controversy amongst the Jews. Matthew 19.3, the Pharisees, it's the exact same story, but the Pharisees ask the same question, but Matthew reveals to us what I think is implied in Mark. And so in Matthew 19.3, this is what they ask Jesus. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife? Same question in Mark. And then it says this, for any cause. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? In other words, the Jews understood there were legitimate reasons for divorce, but there was controversy revolving around what made something legitimate. Or to put it in modern terms, they were basically debating whether no-fault divorce was legitimate in the eyes of God. That's what they were debating. And Jesus knew where this controversy lied. It was dependent upon how the Jews interpreted Moses' instruction regarding divorce. And so Jesus responds to them in verse 3. He brings up the controversy. Well, what did Moses command you? And they respond in verse 4. Well, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. So in their response to Jesus, they are referencing Deuteronomy 24.1, where we are told when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, he is allowed to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. And that is where the controversy lies. It was based upon what did Moses mean when he said, because he has found some indecency in her. That's the question. What did Moses mean by that? And at the time of Jesus, there were two, two schools of thought amongst the Jews in his day regarding this instruction from Moses. Two prominent Pharisees who had a specific interpretation of Moses' instruction. You had the Shammai view, and you had the Hillel view. Shammai's view was the minority view at this time. The Shammai school argued that if a wife commits porneia, that is sexual immorality, we're going to touch on that in a little bit, then the husband must divorce his wife and may remarry. So they believed that the indecency of Deuteronomy 24.1 was specifically referring to sexual immorality, primarily that of adultery. So if a wife commits adultery, you must, as a man, in that context, divorce her and you may remarry. That's the Shammai view. The Hillel view, which was actually the majority view at the time, the majority of Jews believed this. They argued that not only was a man required to divorce his wife if she committed adultery, but also the indecency in Deuteronomy 24.1, they interpreted as referring to basically any cause, any cause at all. In other words, 
Anything a man perceived as indecent was legitimate grounds for divorce. Which basically allowed a husband to divorce his wife over things like burning a meal. Finding a more beautiful woman. That's the context of the question when they ask Jesus, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? That's the context. See, at the time of Jesus, a great majority of the Jews treated marriage very similar to that of Hollywood. I grew tired of her. I found someone more beautiful. They no longer make me happy. See, these Pharisees are testing Jesus to see if he's in line, aligned with their interpretation of Moses. And I think they're wanting to accuse Jesus of being against Moses. And so what does Jesus do? Well, first, he shows them that the issue isn't even whether their interpretation of Moses was legitimate, and it wasn't. But rather, the issue surrounding this whole dialogue comes down to the hardness of their hearts. As he says in verse 5, And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. What a statement to ponder. Moses permitted you to give a certificate of divorce because your hearts were so hard that you could not bear God's ideal. This is hard for us to comprehend, but it seems as though Jesus is saying God is willing to permit that which is not his ideal because of human weakness and sinfulness. See, this isn't, a, this isn't approval by God, but a reluctant permission at best. The fact is, as Ladd states, the Mosaic provision was in reality a witness to the gross evil which arose from or even consisted in a disregard of the creation ordinance of marriage set forth in Genesis 1, 27 and 2, 24, which Jim read for us. In other words, Jesus is saying to these Pharisees, the reason Moses permitted this is because you're wicked and you can't bear God's commands. So he shows the hardness of, her, of their hearts in regards to their question, and then he shows them God's ideal and really his design for marriage. And what he does is he takes them back to the beginning of creation and demonstrates what God's intent and design for marriage was. So look at verse 5 to 9. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Brothers and sisters, there are only two sexes. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Now, there's a lot here, but I think Jesus is seeking to convey two main ideas by quoting Genesis 2:24. First, he was conveying that marriage was meant to be this intimate union between a man and a woman that was utterly unique from all other human relationships. The two shall become one flesh. 
You do not share that with any other human but your spouse, the one you've covenanted with. And Jesus gives his own interpretation by stating, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. You see, as much as I love my little girl Inez, as much as I have a deep, deep love for her, the relationship I have with her is not the one flesh union that I have with Gracie. There is meant to be an intimacy between a husband and a wife that is utterly sacred and unique to them alone. As Genesis 2 says, they were both naked and unashamed. The, the other idea that Jesus conveys by quoting Genesis 2.24 is not just this intimate union, but also the permanence of the relationship. As he says in verse 9, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. You see, marriage is meant to be a relationship of permanence till death do us part. And we need to see that, that God designed marriage as an intimate union between a man and a woman, and this union is meant to be permanent. Now you can imagine how much this would have confronted the Pharisees who came to Jesus with their question to test him. They literally thought they could divorce their wives for really any reason at all. And Jesus completely pushes back on such a notion. He points them to what God actually declared marriage to be. And friends, we know that our society has very little regard for what God intended marriage to be. So much so that we think that human beings can redefine what marriage is. But brothers and sisters, if we're honest, even as Christians, we can fall prey to treating marriage in the same way our culture treats marriage, with a level of flippancy. There was a study done in the States that 60% of professing Christians, those who at least identify of of, uh, as a Christian, get divorced. Now, the number drops drastically of Christians who are actually a part of local churches, but it's still at 39%. We as Christians have been affected by our culture. And this is not what God desires for us, nor for our marriages. And so Jesus responds to the Pharisees. He shows them the foolishness of their ways, the, the hardness of their heart, and then he gives them the ideal of what marriage is meant to be. It is to be this intimate, sacred union between a man and a woman that is to last their entire lives until one of them dies. And then in verse 10, we are given a scene change. Jesus is no longer with the crowds nor with the Pharisees. He's in a house with his disciples, and we're told in verse 10 that the disciples bring up the issue, of course, this issue of marriage again, most likely because they would have been in shock in light of Jesus' teaching, because they too most likely would have thought like the majority of the Jews. And so they ask him again about the matter, and Jesus responds to them in verse 11 to 12, and what he says would have been utterly shocking to them. Look at verse 11 to 12. And he said to them, whoever divorced his wife's and wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Do you see what would have been utterly shocking to them? 
In this statement, Jesus places what women do and what men do on the same playing field. Both the Shammai school and the Hillel school believed that only men were allowed to divorce and get remarried. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Any man who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And the same is also true for women. You see, Jesus in this statement is radically challenging the ideas of the time regarding divorce, but he's also protecting women. Women could be thrown out in a moment in that time because of how the Jews interpreted Moses' instruction. And so he is seeking to protect women to say to these men, you think you can divorce your wife for burning your meal? No, if you do that and you remarry, you are an adulterer. He is seeking to protect women to acknowledge their dignity. And Jesus is saying, if you do anything like that as a man, you are an adulterer. And women, if you also do the same, you are an adulterer. Those are heavy words. This is the ideal that God has for marriage. Permanence. Lifelong commitment. Union. One flesh union. But here's the question. Does this mean there's never a legitimate reason for divorce? Because that's what it seems to apply in the passage, right? But I actually believe the actual answer to that is no. I do believe there are legitimate reasons for divorce and remarriage. You see, we cannot divorce, (laughs) no pun intended, we cannot divorce this passage from the rest of Scripture. You can't isolate a single passage from the rest of Scripture or else you will come to some very strange conclusions on some topics. So, for example, if you divorce 1 Corinthians 7, where Paul speaks about singleness from the rest of Scripture, you're going to conclude that every Christian should be single. So you have to take a passage within its context, understand it within its context, how it's addressing the specific issue, and then... You have to understand how that passage relates and fits to the rest of Scripture. And the context of this passage here in Mark 10 is addressing a very specific issue. Jesus isn't unfolding for us here in Mark 10 everything that he believes about marriage and divorce. He's addressing the question of whether or not one can divorce their spouse for any reason. And so when we read verse 11 to 12, where he makes this very radical statement, it needs to be read with the understanding that Jesus is specifically responding to the idea that one can divorce his wife for anything. And so let me give clarity by adding these words to verse 11 to 12. Yes, I am adding words to scripture, but you'll see why in a second. Let me give clarity by adding these words to verse 11 to 12. So remember, the question is, can a man divorce his wife for any cause? And this is how Jesus responds to his disciples in verse 11 to 12. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her, and if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Now let me read it by placing in there what I think is implied in the Gospel of Mark and is made explicit in Matthew, okay? Whoever divorces his wife for any cause 
or for an illegitimate reason and marries another, commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband for any cause or illegitimate reason and marries another, she commits adultery. You see, Jesus isn't being asked whether or not there's a legitimate reason for divorce. He's being asked if a husband can divorce his wife for anything. And his answer is clearly no. But that doesn't mean there aren't exceptions. You see, when you see this passage in relation relation to the totality of Scripture, you discover that there are actual legitimate grounds for divorce and remarriage. Matthew's account of this story conveys at least one exception that we know for sure that would permit a spouse to to divorce their spouse and remarry. And that exception is in Matthew 19, 9, where Jesus is responding to the disciples and he says this, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. You see, I think Matthew makes explicit what Mark's account implies. When a husband divorces his wife and marries another, he commits adultery except if his wife has committed sexual immorality and therefore has broken the marriage covenant. And it is true also the other way around. If a man commits adultery, a wife has biblical grounds to pursue divorce because the marriage covenant has been broken. Now that word, sexual immorality, is the Greek word porneia. It's where we get the word pornography from. And the word in the New Testament is primarily used in the scriptures to convey all different forms of sexual sin. Adultery, bestiality, same-sex sex. It encapsulates all forms of sexual indecency, including things like pornography. So this is what I think Jesus is saying. If a husband divorces his wife or a wife divorces her husband and marries another for any reason other than sexual unfaithfulness, they have committed adultery. Which means if one divorces their spouse for sexual unfaithfulness and remarries, then he or she hasn't committed adultery. Because they had legitimate grounds for divorce. There's legitimate biblical grounds for the sinned against party to pursue divorce and remarriage. Now I want to say this, and I want us to hear this. Jesus isn't encouraging divorce when sexual unfaithfulness happens. He's simply making it permissible, though he doesn't encourage it. Jesus is actually stricter when it comes to divorce and remarriage than the two two schools of thought at this time, even the, the conservative school, the Shammai school. You see, in both schools, if the wife committed adultery, it was required that a husband divorce her. But Jesus does not require that to happen. He merely permits it. John Stott, I think, captures Jesus' attitude towards divorce so well when he says, Divorce for immorality is permissible, not mandatory. 
Jesus did not teach that the innocent party must divorce an unfaithful partner, still less that sexual unfaithfulness ipso facto dissolves the marriage. He did not even encourage divorce for unfaithfulness. His whole emphasis was on the permanence of marriage and on the inadmissibility of divorce and remarriage. He added the acceptive clause to indicate that divorce and remarriage because of sexual infidelity is alone not tantamount to divorce. His purpose was not to encourage divorce for this reason, but to forbid it for every other reason. D.A. Carson paraphrases what Jesus conveys in Matthew 19, 9, with, I think, a lot of clarity when he says, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery, though this principle does not hold in the case of sexual immorality. See, brothers and sisters, here's the reality. Divorce is never ideal. But in certain circumstances, it's permitted. And I also think, especially with a Christian couple, that when something like adultery or sexual immorality does happen, God would ultimately desire to see repentance, forgiveness, and reconciliation happen rather than divorce. But there are circumstances where divorce might actually need to happen. Now let me give you one other passage that also demonstrates that there are legitimate exceptions that would allow an individual to divorce and remarry. Turning your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. In verse 8 to 9, Paul is giving advice to the unmarried. And then in verses 10 to 11, he gives advice to married believers. And then in verses 12 to 16... He gives instruction or advice to um, Gentile believers who are married to Gentile unbelievers. Okay? So verse 10 and 11, he's giving instruction to two Christians who are married. Verse 12 to 16, he is giving instruction to a Gentile Christian who is married to a Gentile unbeliever. So in verse 10, he says this, To the married, I give this charge. Not I, but the Lord. Now, when he says that, what he's simply referring to is this. Jesus has spoken on marriage and divorce, just as we saw in Mark. He speaks on it in Matthew 19. He speaks on it in Matthew 5. He speaks on it in Luke 16. So when he says, not I, but the Lord, he's simply saying, I'm going to give you the instructions that Jesus himself gave us. And that is precisely what he gives. The wife should not separate from her husband, But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. That is God's ideal. Paul does not give the acceptive clause. He doesn't need to. He is simply expressing the ideal that God has for his children. A wife should not separate. That word separate and the word divorce, they are two different words, but they are synonymous in meaning. Okay, it's like this. Um, If I say in a sermon, if I'm preaching on holiness and I say, God desires for you and I to be sanctified. God desires for you and I to be holy. We are using, I am using two different words that convey the same reality. So when Paul says here, a woman should not separate from her husband, that word is 
conveying the same reality as verse 11, where he says a husband should not divorce his wife. The Apostle Paul, the Roman world at this time period, did not have an understanding of what we talk about as separation versus divorce. When you left your spouse, you were officially considered divorced in the, divorced in the ancient world. So he gives God's ideal to Christian couples in verse 10 to 11. And then in verse 12, he addresses the Christian who is married to the unbeliever. To the rest I say, now hear this, I not the Lord. Now some have said that Paul went out on his own whims and decided to do his own teaching here. That's not what Paul's conveying. What Paul's conveying is this. Jesus in the Gospels never addressed what to do when a follower of God marries a non-follower of God. Jesus never addressed that. He only addressed two covenant people, two Jews, who were married together. So Paul here now says, I not the Lord, in that he is now speaking with apostolic authority, filled by the Spirit of God, inspired by the Spirit of God, to instruct a Christian man or a Christian woman who is married to a non-believing man or a non-believing woman. Okay? So this is what he says. To the rest I say, I not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. So if you're married as a man to an unbelieving woman and she is good to stay with you, you should not divorce her. And then he says in verse 13, if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. And then in verse 14, he gives the reason why, which I'm not going to unpack, but let me read it for you. It's incredible. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. And then in verse 15, he says this, but if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister that is the Christian man or woman, is not enslaved or not bound. God has called you to peace. The idea is this. If your unbelieving spouse decides to leave and is determined to not return, then you should should feel free to let them go. As he says, let it be so. And if that happens, Paul says the believing spouse is not enslaved. That is, he is not bound to the marriage anymore because the one who left has broken the marriage covenant. They're no longer holding fast. You see that? And therefore, the believing spouse is free to divorce and remarry. As Martin Luther explains regarding this passage, if someone is not bound, he is free and released. I think it's funny that the scripture refers to marriage as slavery, but if he is free and released, he may change his status just as though his spouse were dead. You see that? See, here's what I think the scriptures teach. There are legitimate reasons and illegitimate reasons for divorce. And if you pursue divorce for illegitimate reasons and then remarry, God would say that you are an adulterer. 
But there are legitimate reasons to pursue divorce and be allowed to remarry, and those reasons are tied to whether or not the marriage covenant has been broken. You falling out of love with your spouse isn't a legitimate reason. You falling in love with another person isn't a legitimate reason for divorce. You not being happy in your marriage isn't a legitimate reason. You both having different directions in life, you want to pursue this career and you want to pursue this career, is not a legitimate reason for divorce. So what does all this mean for us? Well, I realize I've given you a lot of information, and for some of you, it's probably only created more questions. And if you're interested, I'm happy to provide you with some resources because I can't cover this topic fully in 40 to 45, into a 40, 45 minute sermon. Everything about divorce in every scenario. But here's the thing. There are principles, but how those principles work out is different depending on the specific situations because when there's conflict in marriage, it's never simple, but always complex. So let me give you one example, just to maybe bring a little bit of clarity. Let's say Joe, or Bob and Lucy, let's, let's, I'm trying to think of names that we don't know anyone of. Uh, Bob and Lucy. Find, I find out that Bob has committed adultery on his wife Lucy. So I meet with them, and Lucy's heartbroken, of course. And, um, but Bob is convinced that the woman he's now engaging in sin with is the woman he wants to be with. And so I begin to ask more questions. And based on the, the surface, I think Lucy has biblical grounds for divorce. But then as our conversation goes on, I find out that Lucy, for the last 10 years, has been refusing to have intercourse with her husband, whom she covenanted with the one flesh union. Now, Bob is guilty of sexual immorality, but she is also guilty of breaking the marriage covenant because she is refusing to sleep with her husband. And so that's going to make it a little more complex with how I think about how to move forward with this couple. My goal is hopefully to see reconciliation, but that might not happen. Now, there is another situation where, let's say it's Bob and Lucy again, and Lucy has been a faithful wife, has loved her husband, has served her husband, has, has done, gone over, just given her life to this man. And he, in his hardness of heart, goes after another woman. And I find out, and I meet with them, and I learn all the details. And he's still unrepentant. And even if he were unrepentant, Lucy still might have grounds for divorce. See, it's complex. That's why we need wisdom. It's the same with church discipline. It's not always black and white. We have to think through each scenario. So what do we take from all of this? Well, for one, the most obvious is simply this. Brothers and sisters, God desires human beings, especially his covenant children who are married, to be in intimate, lasting marriages. God's will is to see those of you who are married having strong, healthy, lasting marriage until marriages until one of you dies. 
We're not talking about a perfect marriage, but we're talking about a marriage where, the, where a husband and wife truly love, serve, and respect each other, who are eager to forgive one another, who are eager to work on their issues. This is God's design for marriage. Now, you might be asking, why is being in a lifelong marriage so important in the eyes of God? Well, let me just give you shortly a few times as I've gone quite long. One reason why it is important in the eyes of God is that marriage is a symbol of something beyond itself. Marriage is meant to reflect something far more grand and eternal. Marriage is meant to reflect the nature of God's love between him and his covenant people. And so when divorce and destructive marriages are rampant in society, but especially amongst Christians, it distorts what marriage was always meant to be. Brothers and sisters, hear this. Your marriage has the potential to be a beautiful, beautiful, visible representation of the gospel to a hopeless, dying world but it also has the potential to bring shame to the gospel and to distort the gospel. You know, I I can't tell you how many uh, people, Gracie and I, especially with our unbelieving friends, the impact that our marriage has had on them. We don't have a perfect marriage. We have issues. In our first two years of marriage, I honestly considered whether or not I should go into pastoral ministry But thanks be to God, we worked through our issues and our marriage has grown and we love each other. And one of the most incredible things is to see her, Gracie's um, unbelieving friends especially, who have observed that there is something very different about our marriage than all their friends and all their family. Because I think our marriage imperfectly seeks to represent the gospel. The other reason I think God sees marriage as this one flesh union that is permanent, is yes, we know that as Christians, the hope of the world is Jesus Christ. That's where we place our confidence. But God has ordered the creation in such a way that there are certain institutions that are meant to serve human flourishing for the good of society. So for example, government has been established by God so that there is order to society and not anarchy. And also that evil be restrained because where there is no government, evil abounds. Even when there is evil governments, it is better than that than have anarchy. And one of, if not the most important institutions that God has established outside the church is the institution of marriage. It is without a doubt that our society is in decline. It is without a doubt. If you don't think that, you need to read some history. And though there are many factors for why our society is in moral decline, one of the main factors is the collapse of long-term healthy marriages and the breakdown of the family. All the statistics show this. Divorce rates have skyrocketed in our society and we are seeing and we will see the long-term devastating effects on the current generations and the ones to come. And one of the best ways, if you want to have an impact in our society, one of the best ways 
to fight against the moral decline of our society, to help see our society flourish, is to be a committed, faithful husband and a faithful wife and be a faithful father and faithful mother. As G.K. Chesterton said, the most extraordinary thing in the world is an ordinary man and an ordinary woman and their ordinary children. That's one of the reasons. The other reason why I think God takes marriage so seriously is because covenant faithful matters in marriage because your word matters. Your word matters. Making a promise and keeping your word today isn't seen as all that of a virtuous thing. But in the eyes of God, your word matters. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. What we say matters. And if we say, for better or worse, sickness and in health, till death do us part, those words matter, brothers and sisters. We claim to follow and represent a God who keeps his word. He is faithful to the covenant that he has made, and he is faithful to fulfill all of his covenant promises to us. He does not break his word. And therefore, brothers and sisters, we must strive to be a people who keep our word, regardless of whether you're married or not. You see, there is a temptation to believe that self-fulfillment is more important than covenant faithfulness. And that is a lie from hell. Be faithful to the promises you've made, brothers and sisters. Now to close, I want to quickly speak to three different groups this morning. First, I want to speak to the kids in our church. I know that some of you have gone through hard times at home. And I want you to hear this from me, that no matter what's happening with mom or dad, it's not your fault. You need to hear that. You need to hear that. And you are loved, deeply loved. Also, if you're here this morning and you're single, I want to say this to you. I don't know what God's plan is for your life, whether singleness is your future or marriage is your future. I don't know. But what I want you to hear is that you do not need to be married to live a full, purposeful, God-glorifying life. Singleness is a noble calling so long as you use it to honor God. Jesus was single and Paul was single. Therefore, it's okay to be single. But I also want to say this to you. If marriage is something that might be down the road for you, please hear me when I say this. Outside of following Jesus, there is no more important decision than the person you marry. And you will save yourself years of pain and heartache if you don't compromise and you truly seek to marry someone who is spirit-filled, who loves and fears God and treasures Jesus Christ. Marriage is hard enough when you have two spirit-filled people who love Jesus, let alone being married to someone who does not share the same beliefs as you. And this is why you should always, I believe, involve people in your decision-making when it comes to marriage. Because when you are in love, you are blind. 
Secondly, brothers and sisters, if your marriage is struggling, it might be time to begin addressing some of those struggles. It might be time to truly seek help. Don't wait until it's too late. Healing and restoration can happen, but you have to be willing to seek help. You don't need to be ashamed. We all have struggles. Every marriage goes through seasons of difficulties, sorrow and joy and laughter. And finally, some of you have either been divorced or you're in the painful transition of divorce. And I want to say this to you. There's a lot of stigma and shame around divorce. But I want you to hear that God is full of mercy. And God permits, he gives biblical grounds for legitimate reasons for those who have truly been hurt where the marriage covenant has been broken. And you don't need to feel shame if divorce is a reality or is becoming a reality in your life due to the unfaithfulness of your spouse. You haven't necessarily sinned by pursuing divorce. You don't need to feel shame or guilt or embarrassment. Now, if you, you've experienced divorce and it wasn't for the right reasons or you were the guilty party, you probably do feel shame and guilt. And there is a legitimate place for that. But hear me on this. Divorce isn't the unforgivable sin. Jesus died for our lust. He died for our pride. He died for our anger. He died for our sexual morality. He even died for the sin of divorce. And so let Jesus bear your shame and guilt for you because he joyfully does. And so brothers and sisters, let us be faithful in the context God has placed us, whether that is singleness or marriage. Let us be faithful to our promise. Let us be faithful to say having our yes be yes and our no be no. And let us use our context that God has placed us in, whether that is marriage or singleness, to represent him well. What God has joined together, let not man separate. Let's pray. Father, I simply ask that in your mercy, you would strengthen our marriages. I also ask for those who are single, that they would know that you are more than enough for them. And I also pray for those who are going through painful situations, that you would truly be their strength, and that you would uphold them in this time. And I pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.